We're in the midst of a series in Romans. We're going to be at the end of chapter 1. Uh, it's rated PG today, just so you know. Uh, if you read the end of chapter 1, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. So, uh, content might be a little um, too much for some younger uh, ears. So, I always want to let you know, and then you as a parent, make uh, decisions about kids staying and not staying. That's, that's kind of your call. Um, Romans 1 is Paul's introduction to a church he's never uh, been to before. Uh, Paul is a guy who wrote much of the New Testament, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. And he writes this letter to Rome, and he begins by saying, this is who I am, uh, there's good news, but there's also bad news. And so it kind of reads a little bit like those good news, bad news jokes, you know, like... Um, the bad news is you have hat hair. The good news is it looks better than normal. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, the bad news is, um, the good news is your women's church softball team won a softball game. The bad news is they beat your men's church softball team. And so uh, Paul is saying, hey, there's, there's good news. Salvation is for everybody. Bad news is everybody needs salvation. And good news becomes great news when it applies to you. So um, you, uh, you hear through the grapevine, Taylor Swift is coming to Greenville. Good news. Taylor Swift is coming to Greenville. Great news is you don't have to go. Uh, so there's that. So uh, there's this um, uh, good news and bad news. And Paul began by saying, hey, there's salvation. And it's almost like if you go into uh, to a jewelry store, and they, they, put a, they put a black cloth down to display the diamonds because they want to show a distinction in, in the diamonds. And, and Paul basically is laying out a black cloth and he's saying, all right, here's, here's our problem. And the problem is dark. And so at the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, uh, Paul lays out this black cloth. This is the darkness that we're fighting. The good news is good because there's darkness. And, and, and that's what he does in the, these first couple of chapters. Now, chapter 1 begins uh, with Paul introducing himself, and now we're sort of in the middle. We're at verse 18, and Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the go uh, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, when I think wrath of God, I think, you know, f uh, thunderbolts from heaven or lightning bolts from heaven. I think judgment day and that sort of thing. And it, what, <laughs> there's a different level, and we're going to kind of talk about it in just a second. But the charge is we have intentionally rejected God, or at least people have intentionally rejected God. And if you noticed, he said, the wrath of God isn't going to be revealed. It's not like a judgment day thing. It is being revealed. <laughs> what does that mean? It's being revealed. Like it's happening now. It's not, it's not a future thing, although there is a future of wrath. But God's wrath is being revealed. Now, the idea of wrath in, in the New Testament time, there are a couple of words that the Greeks used in the Greek New Testament for uh, wrath. One is called, one was thermos, from which we get thermostat or thermos. 
It's explosive. It is... Think Incredible Hulk, right? Uh, you make, uh, what's it, Roger, ba- what's his name, Bannister, what's his name? David Bannister? R- Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Uh, you make somebody mad, and all of a sudden he turns green, and his shirt pops off. And so that is the idea behind Thermos. It, it is explosive anger. But there's a different kind of anger that's mentioned or is implied here or is specifically stated here. Uh, the word is orge, and it means being mad because you, you, you love somebody. It, it is, it's a different kind of mad. I'll give you an example of this. When, um, when my daughter Amaris was in high school, she was a freshman. She got to play on the freshman basketball team, and then sometimes she got to play on the JV basketball team, different coaches. Her freshman coach was great to her. Her JV coach was really mean to her. And I'm in the stands, and I love her, and, and she would make a mistake, and he would pull her out of the game, and it kind of embarrassed her. And I, I, was, I was so mad at that, because, you know, that's my, I, don't, I don't care how he treated the other kids. I just cared about my kid, honestly. And, and I, you know, he, maybe he treated everybody that way. I don't know, but I do know he treated my kid that way. I was never, you, you see videos of parents attacking referees. I, I was steaming. In, there was one game, I, I swear to you, I, I'm pretty sure I stroked out. Uh, my blood pressure was so high, and, and I was thinking, if I catch that guy, I'm going to thump him in the love of Jesus. Uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking. But there's, a, there's an anger that is caused because of love. So every parent in this room understands this. God is angry with sin. Two two different types of sin. Godlessness and wickedness. We're going to talk about those things. And the reason God is angry about these things is because they keep us from living the full and meaningful life He created us to live. So the Bible, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. I came to give people a full and meaningful life. And sin messes that up completely. And so God has this plan for our lives, and He wants us to be great, and He wants us to achieve super things, and yet godlessness and wickedness get in the way of so many people. Now, you're probably saying, okay, well, that's kind of not me, Maybe not. Like I said, Paul sort of talks about three different groups of people in the next chapter and a half. Today he's talking about the rebellious. And that might not be you. But you might know somebody like this. So that's who we're going to talk about today. Um, Let's do definitions. Godlessness is living as if God doesn't matter. It's not so much saying there is no God, although that's kind of part of it. It's more... God doesn't matter to me, or I can do my own thing and I really don't care what God thinks. If there's a God, who cares? That's sort of godlessness. Today, we use a word like secularism. That's, we just kind of live like God doesn't matter. Now, the other word is wickedness, and that's living as if people don't matter. 
I'm going to get mine, uh, first come, first serve, uh, to each his own, you know. Uh, I, I'm the master of my own domain. Um, I, look out for number one. This is the language around wickedness. Godlessness leads to wickedness. And it's the antithesis of what Jesus said were the greatest commandments. He, somebody said, what are the greatest commandments? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Well, that's the exact opposite of godlessness. That's godliness. And then he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, wickedness is like, I don't care about my neighbor at all. And so Paul begins this it's kind of a courtroom scene. He has some charges. The, 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 um, uh, the offense is uh, ignoring God. And so he brings up a couple of charges. The count one is godlessness. So he continues. They, these people, the rebellious, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky, through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Count one, they are godless. The problem with humankind is God has revealed Himself, and we can see it. In fact, He says it's unmistakable in in. In the Psalms, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And many of us in this room would say, when we're out in nature, we're never more close to God than when we're, we're out. And maybe you're mountain people, and you like to go to the mountains, and you go to the mountains, and you hike, and you see a waterfall, or you see the trees, or the trees are changing color, and you say to yourself, okay, I see the glory of God in the trees, Maybe you're ocean people, and you go to the ocean, and there's the vastness of the ocean, and you say, I see the glory of God in the ocean. Or there's a storm coming in off of the ocean, and you say to yourself, I see the power of God in the storm off the ocean. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it's a clear night, and maybe you live away where there's not a bunch of you know, uh, light to, to diffuse the stars, and you see the billions upon billions of stars, and you say to yourself, that is glorious. We, I, don't, I, I always hesitate to say we've all seen this, but I, I think many people see the glory of God in nature. And whether it's a waterfall or a stream or a mountain or the ocean. And the thing is, it's everywhere. He says they can clearly see his invisible qualities. It's everywhere. I've had the good fortune of traveling to four different continents, and the glory of God is every place. I was in Tanzania, Africa, and the glory of God was every place. And I was in Brazil, and the glory of God was every place. And I've been in Europe this last summer. I was in the, the Alps of Europe, and the glory of God is there. I mean, it's just remarkable. And we lived in New Mexico, and it's a desert, and it is amazing. And in the desert of New Mexico, it rains like two days a year. And they're both in the spring. And the two days it rains in the spring, all of a sudden, the wild wildflowers are every place. It's brown, and the next day it is a blanket of color. It is one of the most amazing things you'll ever witness. And it lasts about a week, and then it's gone. 
And it is amazing. And it declares the glory of God. And he says, we see clearly his eternal power. We see his power of creation. Look, to create the things that he has created, God is, he is uber powerful. And his divine nature, well, he's organized. There's a, there's a certain symmetry to things. There's an organization to things. And now we're finally feeling like it's fall. I know the calendar has said fall, but you know, last week until the weekend, it, it really didn't feel fallish, but now it feels like fall. It's cold and wet. And you know what comes after fall? Colder fall uh, here in South Carolina. We lived in Michigan where we went from fall to winter. Uh, we, we have something there called snow. And uh, really you kind of know all of a sudden, oh, the season has changed here. It's like it just shifted a little bit. But it's colder fall. But we know after that, after winter comes spring, it happens that way every year. There's a symmetry to how God has created things. There's an order to stuff. And you look at, at through a, a microscope and, and you see organisms and there's a symmetry and you see the structure of the human body and there's a symmetry to it. There is something to be said for God's organization, his divine nature. And, and Paul basically says it is undeniable. They have no excuse. One translation puts it this way. There is no possible defense for their conduct. What's really interesting is every human being witnesses these things. We all sort of know this. And anthropologists have studied the, the mankind for years and years. And they, you, you might find a, a civilization without buildings. And you might find a civilization without walls. And you might find a civilization without public areas. But you never find a civilization without some sort of way of worshiping a god. They all have a temple or something. It reminds me of that old story about a guy who was stranded on a, an island by himself and rescuers finally come to the island. And they're talking to him about you know, how he's survived all these years on the island all by himself. And they notice he has three huts. And they say, well, tell us about your huts. And he said, well, that hut, that's where I live. And that hut, that's where I go to church. They said, well, what's that hut? He goes, that's where I used to go to church. Uh, so the, it's kind of funny if you go to church. Anyway, here's the point. God has revealed himself, therefore we are accountable. This is, this is Paul's point. God has revealed himself, therefore we're accountable. And start, God, uh, Paul starts to build his case. Okay, well, let me show you some things. All right, This is what we do with truth. And so there's truth, and God has revealed truth. But if we're rebellious, we say, I really don't want to know the truth. So what do I do with it? Well, we repress the truth. They, he, says, he called it suppress the truth by their wickedness. We kind of see that all the time. There are, um, there are detective shows. Every detective show you've ever watched, every uh, detective novel you've ever read, there is evidence, and often there are people who are trying to hide the evidence. We suppress the truth or repress the truth. It's what we do. And, and so you see it. Let's take evolution, for example. Evolution is a theory 
that takes faith to believe. To believe that we evolve, that things evolve into better takes faith. There aren't always uh, levels of transition. I, I, I watch shows and they'll say, 40 billion years ago, people only, you know, did this and, and the muskrat had this. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? And, and I like the old joke about if evolution were true, why do, why do mothers not have more than two hands? I mean, if, if it's simply a matter of need that causes evolution, then there ought to be things that are different than they are. It is an explanation, but creation is also an explanation. I mean, I see logically that anything I've ever witnessed that was created had a creator. I, I just see that. If I see this glass, somebody created the glass, a, a manufacturing plant, somebody designed it, somebody put the plastic in, somebody, you know, put it in the, the, the mold. I, I don't think the glass just showed up. If I see art on a wall, I think somebody painted that. Creation implies a creator. It takes faith to believe that. They both take faith. I mean, they're both, they just both take faith. But there's an effort by those who are rebellious to suppress or repress the truth, just how, just who we are. It's kind of what we do. And so you see it. The second thing is we reject the truth. Uh, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. I watch shows where they hunt. I don't hunt. I'm not opposed to hunting. If you want to kill innocent little animals, that's up to you. It's okay by me. I don't care. But I watch these shows, and it's really interesting to me. Uh, you know, they, they, they kill an animal, and they want to thank something, but they don't know who to thank. So they thank the animal... It's really, really funny. They'll, they'll, it's it's, it's a, a moment of worship. They'll put their hand on the deer that they just shot. And they'll say, thank you for giving your life. It's like, well, you, he didn't give you his life. You took it. Right? I mean, he didn't say, hey, dude, I hear you're hungry. Here. Uh, that's not how the deer does things. Right? He, he's trying to not get shot. If you're trying to not get shot, then he didn't give you his life. But we have this innate need to give thanks. And so these people that will say, thank you, dear, for giving me your life. And I giggle every time they say it. And Miriam knows the line. He didn't give his life. You know, it's like, he didn't give his life. You took it, you big killer. Uh, that's how it is. And we got to eat. I'm all good, man. It's all good. If you're a hunter, good on you. Bless you. And uh, I'll take a little of it. All right. So we reject the truth. We repress the truth. We replace the truth. Look, look, this is a really interesting line. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And when I read that, the first thing I think of is... Uh, this idea that there are more than two genders. Holy smokes. For all time, there have been two genders. Now there are 793. I don't know, you know how that can be. And I think to myself, that doesn't make any sense. You could tell a gender of, of skeletons 
That people have been dead forever. You can tell they were male or female just by their bone structure. This is, this is fact. But claiming to be wise, isn't that what you think? They instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And we in our sophisticated state would say, they are so, so old-fashioned. You know, um, there's a natural sequence, by the way. You repress, and then you reject, and then you replace. And then he says this, They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. And again, we think, oh, well, we're much more cultured than that. That's kind of crude idolatry. They saw a bird, they fashioned a bird, they worshipped a bird. They saw a snake, they uh, fashioned a snake, they worshipped a snake. Uh, They they see a tree, they worship a tree. And we think to ourselves, we don't do that. Well, we don't do that. I've never worshipped a tree. We're not crude idolatrists. We're sort of cultured idolatrists. We, We still have idolatry. We worship things like success and wealth, and beauty, and pleasure, and fame. We, we, we see people who are famous and we want to be them. We idolize. There's a show called American what? Idol. The Voice. All these are, these are us watching people who want to be famous. This is what we do. It is cultural, it's cultured idolatry. If you're in business, you might read magazines about guys who are gals who have made billions of dollars. Shark Tank, there are people who are incredibly successful, uh, who are judging people who want to be incredibly successful. This is a staple of of our culture. We're, We're not crude idolatrists. We don't have little figurines of snakes and birds and mammals. But we are cultured idolatrists. And we'll see someone in a car that we idolize. Boy, I'd like to have that. Arm candy. Well, that's, man, she's really good looking. I wonder how he got her. Yeah, it's, it's how it works. Some people have said, I'm arm candy for Miriam. Uh, I, I don't know if that's true. I think it is. Um, it's the beard. It's the beard. It's, this is my no shave November going Old Testament prophet look. Uh, so, thus saith the Lord. Okay, so count one was godlessness, count two is wickedness. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the, uh, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. When your vertical relationship, when there's godlessness, when your vertical relationship is messed up, it will affect how you treat other people. Remember, godlessness is treating God as if he doesn't matter. Well, if God doesn't matter then people don't matter. The reason people matter is because they were created in God's image. Everybody you ever meet is an image bearer of God. 
They are all wildly important. They each have a soul. God loves them with all his heart. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that means every person you've ever met. Well, if I don't care what God thinks about anything, then I sure don't care about people. Godlessness leads to wickedness. Somebody put it this way. Godlessness is the root. Wickedness is the fruit. If, if I don't care what God thinks, I sure don't care what He thinks about how I treat people. Well, why are we good to people? Well, they were created in God's image. We're told to be nice to people. This is God's design for us. We're, we're, we're called to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. We know this. We learn this in Scripture. This is how we're supposed to behave. Rebellious people will say, I just don't care. I don't care what God thinks, and I sure don't care about people. And there's this expression, God gave them over. He uses it three times at the end of chapter 1. God gave them over. It doesn't mean He stops loving people. It doesn't mean they can't be restored or saved. It just means He gives them free will. Let's say you have a 19-year-old son at your house. He knows how you live, what you expect, but he starts to take drugs, he starts to drive drunk, he's sleeping around, he's doing things that in your home are not permissible. He knows better. He knows the truth. He knows the rules. And yet, he flaunts his rebellion in your face. Now, you as a parent have a choice. And you would say, if I did that to my dad, my dad would have said to me, Son, you don't live like that and stay here. My house, my rules, right? If you live in my house, you live by my rules. You don't have to live in my house, but if you do, you're going to have my rules, And he has a choice at this point. My 19-year-old son has a choice to either abide the rules or to go someplace else. And if he goes someplace else, a parent is then giving them over. They're they're basically saying, this is my choice. This is what I want to do. And you're saying, okay, you can do it. Just not here. I, I heard somebody say, you do as little as the law requires... And you love as much as your heart allows. And some of you had that choice to make. And the story in Scripture about the prodigal son is a son who his father gave him over. It's a really wonderful story. And this son says, Daddy, I want my stuff. And Daddy says, you can have your stuff. He doesn't try to talk him out of it. But what's interesting is he gives him over to his own sinful way and he watches for him every day. And God, it says, gave them over. They're basically saying, I want to do this. And God is saying, okay, you can do it. You have free will. And remember we said the whole thing about the wrath of God is being revealed. Well, he says... um, their bodies, uh, they were degrading and uh, sexual impurity of degrading their bodies with one another. And, and they received the penalty for that. 
The Bible says you receive. Look, there's, there's something called cause and effect, reaping and sowing. And when we sin, we reap what we sow. And we see the effect of sin every day. Broken homes, abuse, disease, heartache. The wrath of God is revealed in our world all the time. It's everywhere. Now, Paul then starts to lay out his arguments. There are exhibits A, B, and C. He begins with homosexuality, which is really interesting. I don't think he's picking on homosexuality. I just think, okay, it is natural to see that a male body and a female body go together. And so look at what he says. It's sexual impurity. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Because of this, God gave them over to the shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. We think that homosexuality is some new, sophisticated, modern thing that we've sort of discovered. And yet Paul was well aware of homosexual behavior. In fact, in Rome, where he's writing, 14 of the first 15 Roman Caesars were homosexuals. He understood it. He knew it. It's the longest and clearest uh, portion of Scripture addressing this particular issue. We shouldn't be surprised that it's Exhibit A because it's kind of the most logical way to start, if you think about it. Now, some recently have said, oh, he was just talking about promiscuous homosexual behavior like prostitution or one-night stands or masters forcing their slaves into sexual encounters. But that's simply not true. The the idea is, well, if he knew what we know, if he was sophisticated like we are, if he knew about uh, committed uh, monogamous homosexual relationships, he would have made a distinction. As if those things didn't exist in the first century. Those things did exist in the first century. There's a historian in the first century by the name of Plutarch. Plutarch. (laughs) Uh, Not a name you hear very often. Next time I go to a restaurant, they ask for a name, Plutarch. Uh, That's the one I'm going to use. Plutarch writes this. He said, he writes in the first century, he made a distinction between promiscuous homosexual behavior, which he condemns, and committed homosexual behavior, which he defined as beautiful. Plato, in one of his works, mentions two adult men who have been lovers for 10 years. Paul was well-traveled, was well-read, was incredibly intelligent. It's not as if he doesn't know these things exist. Last week, I mentioned the persecution of Christians. I gave you two reasons. One was um, people thought they were atheists because they didn't worship all the gods. Uh, The other was uh, the uh, the idea that they were cannibals because they were uh, taking communion. And a third reason Christians were persecuted was because they preached against the sin that was committed in the time. It was was happening then. Paul is incredibly clear here. He's not very user-friendly. He just sort of spells it out. And then he goes on. They think foolishly. Since they thought it foolish... To acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things they shouldn't, that should never be done. 
And we see it all the time. People abandon to their foolish thinking. And I mentioned the whole gender thing. It's just foolish to think that way. And then there's a third thing. They act against humanity. Look at this couple of verses. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, and greed. That's economic disorder. Hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, uh, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers. That's social disorder. Think Facebook. Uh, Haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent ways of sinning. Spiritual disorder. They're disobedient to their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, have no mercy. That's familial disorder. And so he gives this list, although it's not comprehensive, it's certainly close to comprehensive. The result of wickedness is sexual disorder and economic disorder and social disorder and spiritual disorder and family disorder. And there is a lot to be disorderly. And disorder is every place. And basically what he's saying is there is something called the doctrine of total depravity. We are innately people who gravitate towards sin. About homosexuality, people will say, I'm born that way. Well, yeah, we're born with a disposition to sin. Your disposition to your sin is different than mine. Mine might be selfish ambition or raging temper or arrogance or greed or infidelity. Yesterday, Elise played in a basketball game and I was tempted. She went up for a shot. The referee missed the call. It was atrocious, reprehensible. I'm getting fired up thinking about it. All right, so I'm in this stand. I have a choice to make. I have a choice to make. I can express my distaste for the injustice of the moment. I thought about the words I was going to say. I thought about the volume with which I was going to say them. I thought about the timing when he ran by. I might let something slip. I would like to, I don't know, um, I wanted to slay him in the spirit of the Lord. Uh, really, spiritually. I, I, was just kinda, I was so aggravated. And yet, I'm born with a predisposition to sin. I just am. It doesn't mean I have to. Simply possessing an innate desire for something doesn't make it right. (laughs) What about the guy who's a philanderer and has three mistresses? Well, I was just born that way. Yeah, we're born to sin. Following Jesus is about giving things up so we can get something better. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Just because you want to doesn't mean you have to. I wanted to say something, but I didn't have to. Possessing a desire innately just shows that we have a corrupted heart. We have sin in our heart. The gospel message isn't let the gay become straight or the adulterer become monogamous. It's let the dead become alive. That's the message of the gospel. And then Paul wraps this up. Although they knew God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but approved of those who practice them. And the word approved in the Greek literally means applauded. 
Misery lumps company. And the idea is, if enough of us agree that what we're doing isn't sin, then maybe it's not sin anymore. If I can get enough people to say, oh, well, that's not sinful, well, then maybe it's not sin anymore. And this idea that we keep uh, progressing, we keep evolving to better and better people, look, the Garden of Eden was as good as it gets. We've been downhill ever since. The verdict is guilty. Rebellious people are guilty. But let me give you just a little bit more good news, bad news. Bad news is we're guilty. The good news is God makes a way. One time Mary and I went to a real, real fancy restaurant. Fancy. I forget what the occasion was. Um, if it, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, anniversary. Maybe it was an anniversary. Let's go with anniversary. I think it was. And on the menu was sea bass. Mm. Never had sea bass. You know, sea bass comes from the sea, thus the name. They only live in salt water. They can't, you put them in fresh water, they die. Sea bass are sea bass. They have to have the sea. They, they live, they thrive, they, they grow in salt water. And so I ordered the sea bass. And the waiter had like a little napkin on his arm, you know, that kind of thing. And he brought out my plate. Do you serve from the left or the right? I don't remember. The left, do you know? <laughs> none of us know. We're, none of us are sophisticated. Uh, uh, it's served in a carton. No, uh, in a restaurant, you, there's a way. And, and he served it to me and I tasted it. You want to know what the sea bass that was raised in the sea, was raised in the salt water? Would you like to know what the sea bass needed? Salt. It needed salt. Because just because you live in the sea doesn't mean the sea lives in you. And just because we live in a world of disorder and sin and wickedness and godlessness doesn't mean wickedness and, sinless and sinfulness and godlessness has to live in us. Just like the sea bass is insulated, we can be insulated. The bad news is godlessness and wickedness are all around. The good news it doesn't have to live in you. Here's the truth. Our guilt is what makes the good news so good. We need salvation. Well, salvation's available. Bad news is we need it. The good news is you can get it. You can get it. We live in a crazy world. And sometimes we think, oh, it's crazier than it's ever been. That's foolish. You, you should read about Rome in the first century. It, it, was, it was really bad, immoral, it, it just unbelievable. They had temples and prostitutes, and it, it, was, it was worse than it is now. Don't ever think it was as bad as it's ever been. It's not really true. And even then, Christianity not only grew, not only started, they grew and they thrived because just because you live in a world with disorder doesn't mean disorder has to live in you. It's just how it works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, your word. 
Thank you that you made it clear to us. Lord, next week we're going to see it's not just the rebellious that are sinners. We're going to see that there are others of us who also sin. Eventually we're going to get to religious people. We're going to see that sometimes we think we're better than we are, and that, that happens occasionally. And Lord, we're going to, we're going to see that uh, it's not just the rebellious that are sinners, it's also the respectable people. Next week we're going to see that. And Lord, thank you for telling us the truth. Because we can't change if we don't know the truth. We thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to speak truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.